So this is church history, uh, Grace Christian Fellowships, CH201 for Church History 201. And this is session 1B. So going forward from here, there will only there won't be an A and a B. The 201 version will have sessions two through nine, approximately every eight weeks, and the 202 version, starting in approximately eight weeks, will have just one class, one session, sessions two through nine, and that, and that will be usually two to three weeks after. Uh, the 201 class. Okay, and just to review, Stephen, what are the dates we've chosen for the next two events? Make sure everyone has this. All right, that's the 202. Do the 201 first, because otherwise it'll be confusing. All right, so that will be session two of the 201. Again, what you're listening to right now is session 1B of the 201. 1B of the session of 201. And for now on, there will not be a 1A and a 1B. There was just too much information for session one to cover that. And plus, there's no uh, way we could do a session, a 202 version until the second time. Because everyone needs to be, you're, if you're taking the 202, and that is you're giving the presentations uh, on various church historians or his, historical figures, not church historians. One of them's a church historian, Eusebius. Um, if you're giving the presentations on various figures in church history, uh, the, the book to use is called 131 Christians that everyone should know. It's in your syllabus, and it's in the first lecture with the author and so forth. And as we said last time, it does not have to be contained, limited to those 131 Christians. If you can make a case to me why the person you're going to cover is worth covering. Okay, so for instance, Tiffany has already t signed up to do St. Monica, it, uh, and, of course, the rules for the session, two is it has to be someone who lived before St. Augustine. So St. Augustine will be covered in say, session three, and I'm probably going to let St. Augustine is such an uh, important figure, I'm probably going to let two or three people do St. Augustine, but limit them to different parts of him. Like one will, can do his confessions, uh, one can do his book called The City of God, or so forth, something like that. But St. Monica was Augustine's mother. And there are quite a few mothers in the history of Christianity that are really worth considering because of the way they, because their motherhood led to uh, raising a son who changed great things for the church, such as the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who I think was named Susan Wesley, I think, if I remember right. So if they're not in the book, you can still do them. So like Catherine is going to do Arius, who was a cult figure in the second century. But Arianism became such an important cult that it actually threatened to wipe out biblical Christianity from the face of the earth. It looked like it was going to triumph over the true Christianity during the entire fourth century. And the two main defenders of biblical Christianity, Athanasius and Gregory of Nyssa, literally had to flee for for their lives. I think I think uh, Athanasius fled seven times for his life and then came back to his bishopric after the coast was clear and it was safe again. 
Uh, and he, you know, the saying was Athanasius contra Munda, which means Athanasius against the world. At times, he alone was the last remaining uh, bishop standing for the Catholic, meaning universal, orthodox, biblical Christianity that had been laid down by the apostles. And uh, so that's pretty amazing. Like, in other words, you know, 90-some percent of the church was deceived. I mean, that might sound a little familiar to you if you've been paying attention to Grace Christian Fellowship. Um, all right, so this handout for today, let's get into this. Should say at the top, GCF Foundational Equipping Biblical Studies and Theology Classes, Cultivating the Kingdom Culture of Continual Catechism, CH201, I Will Build My Church, which is the name of the class. Uh, then the description of the class, a survey of 2,000 plus years of church history. Now, the first thing I want to give you is, is the, the identifications you'll turn in at the beginning of session two, which was November 20th, was it? So that's due by the time you start class. You have to turn those in. Now, the, the uh, identifications will come from the first six chapters of the book. And again, if you're, if you're reading weekly, we've tried to figure this out so that you would only have to read about nine pages of the book called Church History in Plain Language, fourth edition. It's must have the fourth edition. You would only have to read about nine pages. And really, the language is super plain. He's writing, writing that um, what used to be considered maybe a, a junior high audience, but probably still, still most high school students today could read on that level, probably. It's really simple English. It's really easy reading. And what we're trying to do is I'm trying to make, you know, we are going to unroll a whole number of classes. I've asked John to consider two years from now starting our third class, which I'm, I'm hoping he will do a, a survey of all the books written by the Apostle John, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. And that that will be our third class that we introduce and run every two years. And we want to develop an Old Testament survey class. Uh, we'll keep doing this church history class. We'll keep doing the systematic theology class. And we want to do a class on the Gospels and Acts, the five historical books of the New Testament, and a class on the Pauline epistles. So obviously, we probably won't be covering James and Jude in our classes, if, if, unless we throw that in for, for no extra charge with one of the classes as bonus material, so to speak. All right, so uh, I, I just want to go over this identifications thing again in case you're confused by them. I, uh, this will probably change when we run the class two years from now again, but for now, I really have trouble keeping up. I, I had to, just to get this done, I worked all day Friday and all day Saturday, and I didn't even get to watch the Buckeyes play yesterday uh, or attend Nathan and Tiffany's uh, birthday party. Well, I came for five or ten minutes. But um, with the identifications, you're only going to do three for every class. So out of all this whole list, all you have to do is choose three, but you cannot do more than five. You can do up to five. If you do six or more, we won't even read them. But if you do up to five, we'll grade all five, and the best three will be kept, and the worst two will be thrown out for your grade. But if you notice, uh, there, there are what you can do an identification on 
is given by, uh, there's one for the prologue. You can do an identification on what we mean by church ages. Because hopefully you understand the concept that, that the modern evangelicals think when it says the ends of the ages, that they think it's about the end times, at the end of the world, when really it's talking about the end of the age of Israel and the starting of the age of the church in most cases in the New Testament. So if you want to address what that means, there's one identification from the prologue. There's none from the foreword. But starting in the first section, the age of Jesus and the apostles, 6 BC to 70 AD, which I've put a subtitle of my own called Laying the Foundation, the Birth of Global Christianity. Starting with that, there are several for chapter 1 and several for chapter 2. Plus, we'll end today with a discussion for about a half an hour about great men in history. So I've listed what the discussion for, for November 20th will be. The trial of Jesus, the trial and death of Jesus. So, however you want to approach that, what I'd like you to consider is uh, all, any aspects of the trial of Jesus. The main aspect that I'll be discussing is how that the Sanhedrin, in the name of the Mosaic Law, broke uh, about a dozen of the... Uh, commandments from the Mosaic law on how to conduct trials because Jesus' trial was a sham trial. Now, if that's an interesting subject to you, you can read the book called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. And long before, many of you are probably familiar with Lee Strobel, who's kind of the most famous latest one, but he's just a long line of people who set out to prove that Christianity was full of crap and became a Christian in the process. And this Frank Morrison was also a journalist, happened to be a British journalist, and he decided he would put an end to this Christian nonsense once and for all and examine all the evidence about the life of Christ and the historicity of Christ and his, and his trial and his, you know, the so-called resurrection of Christ, and that he was going to document how full of nonsense the whole thing was and ended up becoming a Christian in the process of his research. Uh, so, in that, uh, of course, uh, Lee Strobel's most famous book along that line is called The Case for Christ, a book well worth reading. However, uh, this guy's book, Who Moved the Stone, he happened to decide to spend a bunch of time on the trial of Jesus, and he documents thoroughly how many laws of, of, of trials that the Sanhedrin was supposed to be following that they broke in the trial of Jesus. It was an illegal, illicit trial. And that's somewhat important because there was no charge that could be brought against him. And there's never has been a person other than Jesus that no charge could be brought against him. We could find plenty to put any of us on trial about, <laughs> but we won't bring that up in particular today. All right. So in chapter one, you could discuss why Christianity is a, what a major world religion is and why Christianity is one. You could uh, discuss what Roman crucifixion is. 
You could talk a little bit about Palestine in the age of Jesus and the apostles because, because the cultural context that the New Testament is written in and the life of Christ is lived out in and the early church is birthed in is really important and touched on in chapter 1, etc. You could talk about the phenomena called Panhellenism that started with Alexander the Great and what that is. And that's somewhat important because Paul is living in three worlds. He's a Jew uh, who is a disciple of the most famous Pharisee and rabbi named Gamaliel. So Paul would have had the entire Old Testament memorized by the age of 12, and he would be an expert in all the Mosaic law, including the Midrash and the Mishnah that went away. That would be as like saying, Terry has memorized the entire text of the Bible, and all the notes of two of the most important study Bibles. You know, when they, like, I don't think he has yet. Not quite done with that project? <laughs> Me neither. So, uh, but that's what these guys would do by the time they were teenagers. You know, different ages have different standards, and it's, it's kind of, we live at one of the lowest standards in the history of the church in terms of what we call people to. So every Israelite was expecting a Messiah. What were their expectations of the Messiah? What does, but what, what does the Messiah or Christos in, in Greek mean? Etc. Okay, everyone got that idea? Maybe if we have time today, we'll go, go back to the IDs. But you can see I've listed IDs for each chapter. Now, you're only going to choose a total of five of these out of the six chapters. And I'm only going to grade... Uh, a, a maximum of five. However, you might want to, the reason I want you to have this ahead of time is when you're reading these chapters, this would be a pretty good key to what I think is important in the chapters. And again, there's no test. We are, there will be greater requirements for this class the second time we run it, because by then, hopefully, we'll have Deanna on staff, and she'll be grading them <laughs> as part of her job. But I just can't be grading a lot of paper, so I, we're making this first running the easiest time we're ever going to run it. And I'm hoping to keep this generally as the easiest and most fun of all the classes we offer, partly because history is not appreciated in our day. That was what the last lecture was all about. We talked about the importance of history and different. one of the things we covered was different reasons why nobody studies history anymore. And this is killing us. You're, like you're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, evangelicals, for your lack of studying of Christian history. Because it doesn't take seriously the Bible verse, I will build my church. And the gates of Haiti will not prevail against it. If Jesus has been building his church since his ascension and his outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, and he's been active in the church since then, it's downright spitting in Jesus' face again to not, to not study its history. And the, and the idea that what the Holy Spirit through the Scripture, working through practical circumstances in churches throughout the centuries, is not a clue to what God is doing and how to interpret his word is the ultimate modern hubris. And there are times that one of the most scary things about modern Christianity is how closely it mirrors the world. 
The, the worldly culture around us has no respect for history and only is concerned about the new, the latest, the greatest. Part of the birthing of evangelicalism after the Civil War that came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy was a disdain for studying history and a, a disdain for serious scholarship and approach to the scriptures. And it's led to some of the worst versions of Christianity mask. And, and the, the, the hardest part about the whole thing is that the people who adhere to, to evangelical and fundamentalist Christianity tend to think we're the best Christians that have ever been on the planet. When in fact, we're just, our message and our lifestyle has been compromised and reduced in so many ways. So hopefully the church history class will get, get, help us have a greater feel for why it's our thrust to rediscover and restore a biblical kind of Christianity and why we need to, to get delve into all aspects of that. Does that make sense? Okay. So again, on the identifications, go up to the top of the page. You're going to answer five questions, a maximum of four sentences. Now, I'll make some exceptions when you, if you combine some things. Because if you notice at the end of chapter one, I have the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Herodians, and Essenes. Those are five sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, sects of, uh, hopefully I'm saying that word right, uh, that of, of Jews that were in Jesus' day, and they each, just like our various sects today, have different emphasis and focuses. The Pharisees had, were quite a bit different than the Sadducees. They didn't like each other particularly. And so when, if you know who they are, you'll get a lot more out of reading the Gospels in the book of Acts. If you know who they are, what they believed, and so forth, and it will actually alert you, because in the fundamentalist modernist controversy, the modernists are very close to the Sadducees and their beliefs, and the, and the conservative denominations are very close to the Pharisees and their approaches and their beliefs. So the more you get a hold of that, the more it can help us in our journey to try to find real and true biblical Christianity. Does that make sense? So... Keep it to four sentences, but if you are combining, there's a few cases where it makes sense to combine a few. If you're, and hopefully I'll cover some more of these by, by the end of today, if we have enough time, but until so it'll become clear which ones are easy to combine. But uh, for instance, if you jump over to uh, chapter six, there's the Palestinian canon, the Alexandrian canon, the Miratorian canon. If you want to cover all those as one ID, and therefore, I'll give some license that if you want to have five or six sentences, maybe even seven, that's okay. But don't be writing, if you're, if you're going on to the second page on an ID, I'm not even going to grade it. Because the point is to keep it really short. You, you, should not, you should be less than half a page on all IDs. A quarter of a page is more the ideal. Four or five sentences, three, four or five sentences, three or four sentences, really answering who the person was, or who's involved in the event, where it was, what it was, or what they they were what they were important for, or what they did, that is, when, and most importantly, so what? Why is this important? Why would we care? Today was Reformation Sunday, right, Bob? And uh, why would we care what Reformation Sunday is? 
and I took an unofficial survey in our, during our dinner today, and I asked people from various evangelical backgrounds if they came from a tradition that celebrates Reformation Sunday, and every one of them said no. And I was like, wow. Now, at the Catholic Church, they don't celebrate Reformation Sunday. <laughs> but uh, they would consider it important. For all the wrong reasons. All right, so uh, so we do we get that? So who, what, when, but especially the so what. So you might actually, if you're writing four sentences, two of your sentences might be on the so what. Now, please avoid a run-on, run-on, run-on sentence. Don't, like, I was in college, and if I was asked a, an essay question that I thought was... Uh, needed a whole book, I would be sarcastic and write a whole book about it. <laughs> Professors don't like that. And <laughs> so don't have, like, in order to have four sentences, don't have a sentence that's like 372 words long. <laughs> uh, like Ephesians chapter 1 is one sentence from verse 3 to the end of the chapter. Uh, don't do that to me. Paul can get do that, but you're not Paul. All right. All right, so... Um, and hopefully you will kind of get start to get a feel. Now, if I get some done, I'm hoping to write a few of these IDs and email them to you. But if I don't get it done, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to try to do a few just so you have some samples. Now, at the bottom of the page, one more note on this, and then we'll we'll... If we have time to go through the chapters individually, we will. But some of the IDs, especially in chapters 3, 4, and 5, appear in more than one chapter. So you'll get guys like Marcion, uh, who's mentioned in both chapters 5 and 6. So some of that's unavoidable. So in case you don't know it, the book has an index in the back. So if you look at Marcion in the index, it'll give you every page that Marcion's mentioned on in the whole book, which with Marcion will probably be six or seven pages at least because that was a fairly important cult. And very much the same, very much similar to beliefs to Jehovah's Witnesses today. Now, on the back of the page at the bottom, I've given you some bonus points probably be worth something like a half a point to a point per verse. But if you want, uh, you can do a little bonus by cutting and pasting. Please follow the same format I do on, on the outlines that you get on Sunday mornings during the Sunday uh, Bible study hour, where you put the reference and then the scripture, and then in, in brackets what translation you took it from, NASB or ESV or what have, have you. And I use the same format on Tuesday nights. And I have an example of that format at the bottom of the page two there. But if you want to, you can find up to seven scriptures from the Old Testament and up to seven scriptures from the New Testament that have are the scripture itself talking about why history is important. Because the Bible, as we pointed out last week, is a book of history. So does that make sense? Now, hopefully we'll go through line by line, but if, you, if we don't, these, you know, it'd be good to sort of have this, your notebook available when you're reading a chapter, 
And when you're about to read chapter 4, read all the names real quick and just kind of keep a mental note. Be looking for Polycarp and be looking for Callistus and be looking for the five Julio-Claudian dynasty emperors, which is not mentioned in the book. <laughs> just throw you off a little bit. But a couple of those of the five, a couple that are of the five Julio-Claudian uh, emperors are mentioned in the book. Now, you can always Google one of these. And you can always Wikipedia them, and, and you can look into it as much as you want. This is, this is all like for fun. S set your own level. If you put in Julio-Claudian dynasty in Wikipedia, you'll read a nice article about Caligula and Nero. Nero was the last of the five, started with Augustus all the way through, for, through Nero. But they're important because from the time of Julius Caesar all the way through Nero, the cult of emperor worship was growing in the Roman Empire. And by the time of Nero, it is so strong that um, the Christians are starting to be killed because they wouldn't say, Kaiser Curios, that Caesar is Lord. They refuse to greet one another that way, and they refuse to make an annual um, sacrifice to the emperor, even, uh, and so forth. And they began to die for that. And that went all the way from 64 AD to 312 AD to when Constantine becomes emperor and, and makes Christianity legal for the first time. In all sorts of biblical issues, the word martyr itself comes out of that time. Because originally, martyrion was just the Greek word for witness. And it eventually meant like the ultimate witness was staying faithful to Christ even unto death. And that proved to be true, as um, you can find out which of the famous church fathers that we'll be studying said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The more they killed them, the more the church grew. And that affects, that affects the church in so many ways. And then if you could, when you can kind of get out of all the crazy modern ways of interpreting Revelation, when you read in Revelation 3... For instance, about, uh, where is it? Is it in here somewhere? Um, yeah, when you read about uh, Revelation, the second church in, in Revelation 3, which I think therefore is the fifth church, sixth church, I forgot, fifth or sixth church in the, in, out of the seven, he talks, he writes to the church in Pergama, Pergamum, where Satan's throne dwells. Now, I would venture to say, if you haven't read the book yet, there's probably no one in this room that actually knows what that actually means. Yet it's in the Bible, and there's told to you at the beginning of Revelation, there will be a blessing to whoever reads and whoever heeds this book. Yet the modern interpretations have, in, have stolen it from them. And what he means by where Satan dwells is that all, when you start learning what John was teaching us again this morning, how to read the Bible more biblically, you begin to realize that Satan, all through the Bible, Satan is embodied in the state, that is, in civil governments. So Pharaoh is a foreshadowing in a type of Satan, and Egypt is the most powerful worldly nation, boast in, in lifting up that praise of man, 
man-centered world, you know, what, what Augustine goes on to call the city of man. Egypt stands for that in the Old Testament. All the way through eventually the Babylonians, then the Medes, then the Persians, they stand for, and then Alexander the Great, all the way to Romans, as the book of Daniel lays out all those coming kingdoms. And to a Jew, they understood that Satan embodies himself in the civil governments of this world. And that should help you understand a couple things. The reason Pergamum is called where Satan's throne is, is because it was the first city to fully embrace the cult of emperor worship and to build a temple to Caesar worship. And it was considered the greatest temple and shrine of Caesar worship, which is the Bible's view is Satan worship. It was very much like Washington, D.C. Oops. And frankly, when we study this first 312 years of church history, hopefully it will get you very nervous about how various uh, forms of Christianity in America have aligned themselves with political parties, which I think is most unscriptural and particularly most foolish in our day and age. And most of the liberal modernist churches align themselves with the Democratic Party. Hillary Clinton started out as a big shot Methodist. And most of the conservative denominations line themselves up with the Republican Party. And both parties are incredibly statist. They want to grow the state, which is directly competing with the idea of freedom in Christ. And so, you're, you know, hopefully the evangelical courting of the Republican Party will become a little bit uneasy to you as you study church history. Because whenever the church has courted the state, it's been a bad thing for the church. So, hopefully everyone got, we're going to set that aside for now. And what I want to do today is last, last week, or two weeks ago, I guess it was, was, or three weeks ago, whenever we met, you should have notes that said, uh, um, it should have said something to the effect of uh, session one of nine, today's agenda. And that's the one that some people found confusing. So hopefully you can listen to it a couple times on the podcast until it's clear to you. But what we didn't have time for is that we're going to do a survey of the various chapters uh, that we read each time. I'll give you some highlights from them. And, of course, uh, I want to thank Deanna, who, despite the fact that she's not yet on staff and is a very busy young lady, has got some minor thing coming up like a wedding or something. Uh, just just a little attempted humor. If, you're, if you ever planned a wedding, they're quite involved. Very involved. Uh, Deanna's been helping me do this because we actually have a system where I do it in my Kindle books. Some of you know how to read my Kindle books and do read my Kindle books. And, and uh, you're welcome to do that if you want. Because I highlight in Kindle in three colors, yellow being important, 
blue being even more important and orange being even more important. <laughs> and occasionally if I have so much highlighting going on that I don't know what to do, I'll do one or two words in pink, which is like off the charts important. <laughs> and uh, then I also put text boxes in with notes, uh, especially a lot of scripture verses that correspond to the point being made and, and other comments. And then I also put, I cut and paste uh, uh, websites that if you were interested in that subject, you could go to that website and find even more. However, all those websites are in these notes you're given because Deanna is taking my notes and turning them into bullet points. And the, so the bullet points come, are coming out of my highlighting and my text box notes. So Deanna's just saving me some time by taking the, the work I've done, typing it all up, and then it takes me about an hour to reformat it after she sends it to me. And so this is kind of a Group effort. So let's today, we're going to try, you should have the one in your hand that says uh, session one of nine, October 16th, now it's October 30th, 2016, review of today's chapters from the text. That's what we couldn't get to last time. So the text there is listed as church history and plain language. You see the four chapters we were supposed to read, the forward, the prologue, chapter one, and chapter four, or chapter 47. And we're going to try as much as possible to review those. Uh, does anyone know what time I started? Around 2.15, I think, right? So that would take me to 3.45, and then we'll have a discussion. If everyone could get, we'll probably end up going to 4.15 or 4.30 today. We'll go shorter if everyone was in their seats when the started instead of coming in after it starts. And sitting four more rows back, then you're allowed to sit back. Move up a little bit, Sam. All right, so uh, <laughs> you're not allowed to sit back that far. Because then I don't know who's back there. I need, I'm old. All right. So the forward. Uh, the forward says the goal of this book in church history class is to study the rich legacy of the Christian world in order to better understand the church today and our participation in it. So he just makes the point that it's in plain language to a broad audience. Now, he all, then makes the point that it's not a comprehensive. Does everyone know what comprehensive means or exhaustive is a more theological term? doesn't mean you'd be really tired when you finished. That's what I thought when I first became a Christian and I first got my first exhaustive concordance. I didn't know what the word exhaustive meant, so I said, man, he must have been really tired by the time he finished making this book. <laughs> it looked pretty extensive. It just means that it's complete. It covers everything. So no history is complete right? All news, all history is selective. One of the things we are brought out in our Tuesday this year were the entire uh, Tuesday Bible study at Wright State this year is on, the, is on approaches to Scripture and how to get past the reductionist modernist views of Scripture and go back to a more holistic view. And there's 15 emphases we're studying in that in that class on Tuesday nights, and emphasis five, the Word of God is the subject for the entire year this year. It's that you know the Tuesday night class takes about four years to go through, so it's called rediscovering and restoring biblical Christianity, and it's kind of all the issues that we've been seeking to restudy and rethink and build a different kind of community. So if you really want to know what we're trying to do in, in Grace Christian Fellowship. Come to the right state meetings on Tuesday nights are not for just right state students. We try to emphasize that. They're for everybody. And the only reason we have them at right state is that way we get a few right state visitors. Okay? So, uh, 
one of the things we emphasize is the Bible itself is a book of history, but it doesn't cover the whole history of the world. Now, there's things in Daniel that seem to be an allusion to, to say, Alexander the Great or the coming of the Romans, but it doesn't mention them by name or give any details or whatever, because the Bible is a, is a history of God's eternal declarations, his eternal decrees, in other words, his eternal purpose, and his providential entering into history to bring that purpose about. And his primary way of bringing that purpose about is by calling a group of people together to walk in covenant with him and with each other to demonstrate his lordship and his way of life to the world around them. Our evangelistic efforts would be much easier if our way of life as, as a church would be more indicative of our commitment to Christ. But when the divorce rate is as high among evangelical Christians as it is among worldly people, when there's almost no knowledge of the Bible among people who claim that they're Bible-believing, when there's uh, 45 to 70 percent of kids being raised in Christian homes today are leaving the faith when they, in, after the age of 18 and before the age of 25, and most are never coming back, when that's our testimony before the world, when we're known for financial scandals, you know, I am a Pentecostal, I am a charismatic, I believe in the present gifts of the Holy Spirit, but Pentecostalism in the last 115 years has been known for financial and sexual scandals. And there's reasons for that. The very approach to ministry, is, it cultivates that. Because most people are trying to advance themselves. And community is the antidote to that. So, in this book, he's not doing a comprehensive history, just like the Bible's not doing a comprehensive history, because that would be impossible. There has to be a historical selection process. And I chose this book because I have never seen a church history book that's less than 1,500 pages that was actually worth reading before this. This is only 550 pages. It's extremely uh, easy English, and it covers about 80% of the most important events that you would want to cover in an introductory survey to church history. That's pretty, it's just, that's just quite impressive. I'm very much impressed with this book. Now, Richard Shelley is writing from an evangelical perspective. And by the way, when I blast evangelicals all the time, it's because I am an evangelical. And my heart cries out for us to not be doing this so badly. The church today is living a way that opens the door for the name of Christ to be dishonored because of our lives. And what, I, you know, what I'm motivated by is building the kind of community that people would have to respect our Lord because there's just no way to not respect everything about our marriages, our child raising, our businesses, our finances, etc. And the way we love each other, serve each other, treat each other. Go help the haggers move this week. Because uh, that's, that's what we do. Um, now, hopefully you know by now that Richard Shelley... Uh, or is it 
Bruce Shelley, right? What's his name? <laughs> Somewhere there. Bruce Shelley wrote the book in the first three editions, then he, he passed away. It was starting to become a fairly popular book in, in uh, introductory classes on church history. So the publishers asked this guy, R.L. Hetchett, to take it over. And, you know, God is sovereign. And this is a great example of it because R.L. Hatchett improved the book greatly. You will not get the point of so much of this class if you read any of the first three editions. Because Arhel Hatchett went back and added more information about the church's clash with Gnosticism in the first five centuries. And if there's anything that we're up against in evangelical Christianity, it's that evangelical Christianity is becoming increasingly Gnostic. So it, this class will help you understand the ideas of Gnosticism, and you'll begin to see them in everything that we're doing in the church today. And that's why we don't, you know, Jason did that message, like, love God with all, with all your work. Most churches never address work. But, the, but the, the whole idea of the Sunday celebration of the Lord's Day is based on six days you shall work. It's based on the celebration of accomplished work in the, in the starting of a new work week. And, a work, and because work is the way God brings about recreation. And we can't fulfill the Great Commission if we're not if we're not business people and vocational people, teachers, lawyers, doctors, so forth, in 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 taking our callings in in education or business or uh, law or medicine or whatever, and and bringing Christ to bear in levels of excellence in, in that whole industry. Are you the best worker at your place? Are you the one that they say we could never deal without so and so? This company couldn't exist without so and so. You would be amazed if, you know, again, I have the advantage of being at this for 40 some years, but you'd be amazed how many Christian businessmen I've known who basically say, I always try not to hire Christians because they're always lousy workers. And there's even Christians who say that. So uh, that comes out of a lot of our Gnostic ideas about reality in segmenting our life into the spiritual departments of worship, prayer, and Bible study, and the things we do behind the church walls. Is instead of bringing to bear the claims of Christ on the way we work, the way we serve the way we manage our finances, the way we raise our kids, the way we uh, have, have our dog, if you want to have a dog. Uh, the way, you know, <laughs> whatever. So, um, so that whole, that, then he also uh, adds a part about the expansion and transformation of Christianity since the year 1900. The old book, Goes, goes beyond what 1900, mostly in what's going on in Western Europe and the United States. But I think hopefully all of us know by now that, that Christianity is pretty much dying in Western Europe and the United States. Europe is, Europe is 
almost all Western European countries are less than 4% of the people professing to be Christians. Now, hey, uh, Sam, can you go get me another bottle of water, please? It is hot up here. Um, so one of the things I'm hoping we'll connect today if we get far enough is that Christianity, it was clearly Jesus' intentions. It's discernible in the Gospels. It's definitely a major theme of the Old Testament. Unfortunately, it didn't occur to the apostles until Acts chapter 10, but a major idea of the New Testament is that Christianity was going to be for every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. God, God throughout the entire Old Testament, promised that hundreds of times. God's major beef with the Israelites throughout the centuries was their turning inward to do the things of God inside themselves, but closing the doors to the kingdom of God from the nations around them and their hatred of the nations around them. That's why Jesus was upset, not that they were selling in the temple, but they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. That was supposed to be where the Gentiles were invited to come know God. And they set up their marketplaces there because in their mind there was no use for that, the court of the Gentiles, as if God had made a mistake and even designated that they have such a thing. So God, you know, has to give Peter a vision three times, and he has to take the initiative in pouring out the baptism in the Spirit on the Gentiles because they weren't about to invite them to pray to receive Christ, get water baptized, or baptize in the Holy Spirit. So God took the initiative in Acts chapter 10. And we're going to see, hopefully, in chapters 1 and 2, that Christianity uh, grows out of it. Uh, Israel and into the nations as God always takes his new move out of a remnant of his old people. Many evangelicals will join us on this journey to restore the church. Many. And in fact, our church is full of ex-evangelicals who are still evangelicals. They're just another kind of evangelicals, hopefully. <laughs> Uh, God always takes his people out of the remnant of the last people. Remember Elijah? You know, Lord, they've torn down your altars, they've persecuted your prophets, and I alone am left. And, uh, and, and he says, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And the new move of God is going to come out of those 7,000. And in the, in the early decades of the church, the uh, thank you, Sam. The church grew out of the you know the twelve apostles were all Jews, and it grew out of that into the Gentile nations around them, as the Old Testament makes clear that it would, as Christ makes clear that He would, and as they came to discover was the whole point in the New Testament. Okay, so. Um, that culminates in what we're going to study in chapter 47, that Christianity is exploding worldwide right now. And in, in, in there's an unprecedented growth. In the last 100 years, there has been more martyrs for the Christian faith 
than all the centuries combined, including the martyrs of the first four centuries that we're going to study. That's amazing, right? And if you're not aware of that, you know, sign up for, uh, what's the magazine, Blood of the Martyrs? Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, you know, get their emails, which I get. And uh, and in just in the last 50 years, since, since World War II, so that's starting to get to be 60 years or so, there have been more converts to Christ than probably all the centuries of church history up till now. And Christianity is growing so fast in so many places that American Christianity is no longer the power broker of world Christianity. The African bishops made the Episcopalian bishops in America uh, back off of some of their radically left-wing antichrist, homosexual, pro-homosexual witchcraft agenda. Because they are more in number and more faithful. And, you know, Episcopalianism was born out of the Church of England in the Reformation. And today there's about one million Anglicans who attend church every Sunday in the nation of England. In Nigeria alone, 40 million Anglicans go to church every Sunday. And so, you know, Western Christianity is becoming irrelevant. And if Grace Christian Fellowship, if we don't continue to move forward towards eventually having teams of people get involved in that, then we're really missing the purpose of God for our generation. Now, when he uses the terms Western Church and global Christianity, he admits that those are the global South and the West, those are kind of inadequate. Mostly they're inadequate because the global South includes China, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, South Korea, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, India, which is in the Northern, Singapore, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, right? Um, just a bit, just barely though, right? Not, not, but, uh, but it's not really the global South, right? So, um, so those, you know, but you could say uh, developing nations versus you know, the industrialized nations that came out of Christendom and that have thrown off Christianity lock, stock, and barrel. Um, but, you know, we want to kind of focus in this class a little bit on Christianity as a global expansion movement and what God's doing in the nations today. One of the things I hope to bring out, I wish Davion were taking the class, because it's always a hot-button issue for him. Uh, he had me listen to a, a rapper that you guys probably know who they are. I don't know pop culture. But this rapper's message was basically uh, from an African-American guy speaking to African-Americans on why would you guys be Christians, because that's the white man's religion. And that's a big theme in the African-American culture today, but what we're going to see is that the Africans saved the church in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. And the Christianity that you follow today was primarily formulated and the foundations were laid down by black people. So we wouldn't uh, be saying the creeds if it wasn't for black people who wrote them. <laughs> so uh, hopefully we'll uh, emphasize that a little bit. The prologue uh, mentions that many 
Christians barely have any knowledge of church history. But God tells Israel numerous times, especially in the Old Testament, to remember what he's done to, for them in the past. And no fair using these verses. But I gave you a bonus question that you can write up to seven verses that tell us not to forget. Give you a hint in the New Testament, in 2 Peter is the last thing he wrote before he died. And three times in 2 Peter, he's saying, I'm doing this so you can, after my departure, you can bring into remembrance all that we have, apostles have laid down. One, a real key to understanding the New Testament is that when certain figures, specifically Christ, Peter, and Paul, when they begin to realize this is my last time to talk to you, they say some of the most important things that they've ever said. They're like, pay attention to me, boy. Foghorn, leghorn. <laughs> pay attention to me, boy. <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. This, this is really important. You're like, man, man, man. The following message is really, really, really important. Acts 1, 3 through 9. Luke 24. John, the Passover supper of John 13, 14, 15, and 16. This is the last time I'm going to have a chance to pour this into you. So here's how I'm going to continue to take over the world and set the captives free and bring redemption and recreate the world according to God's image and fulfill the original intention to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth that was given to Adam and Eve that I'm restoring to mankind. And this is how I'm going to do it before I come back to receive a kingdom prepared for myself. Paul does that. Look at Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders when he knows it's the last time he's going to talk to them. Right? In, in some of his letters, he, he knows that these are some of the last letters I'm going to write. Second Peter, he mentions that God has, Christ has made it clear to him that he's about to depart. So he's writing these things so that you can, I can bring into your remembrance everything that we've hand, handed down from the Holy Spirit, from Christ, that this is the Catholic faith in the, in the biblical, in the sense of Catholic universal, what all Christians need to believe. So uh, we've done a better job of developing that on Tuesday nights, but the Bible really is a book of history. The first 17 books of the Old Testament and the first five books of the New Testament, which are the foundational books, are history books. But even when you read the prophets, five major, 12 minor, it always tells you at the beginning of various sections of, of each prophet, the word of the Lord or the burden of the Lord that came to Isaiah during the reigns of, and it tells you who were the kings of Judah or who were the kings of Jerusalem at that time, because he's prophesying not about the end times, so Hal Lindsey can sell more books, but he's prophesying so that uh, to a specific nation at a specific time that's about to have specific dealings from God and what to do. That's why Jeremiah, you know, uh, 12, is it? Yeah. Uh, says to take, you know, to seek the welfare of the city that I've sent you to, build houses, marry wise, plant vineyards, and seek the welfare of the place I've sent you, because they had already read in Daniel that they were only going to be gone for 70 years. So they're basically saying, why invest here? The rapture's coming, let's not go to college. Sound familiar? 
Who cares about discipling our grandchildren? The rapture is coming. 88 reasons why the rapture is in 88. Get your rapture helmet today. <laughs> um, that was one in, in our my ornery or younger days. We were, we were going to start a side business of rapture supplies. <laughs> it was just a joke because none of us believed in the rapture. But the idea, we were going to like have a rapture helmet. So if, if the rapture happened while you're indoors, it would when you hit the ceiling, it would sense the pressure and drill drill you through. <laughs> you wouldn't want to get trapped up against the ceiling. <laughs> Then, then the, the 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 rapture parachute. In case you had evil thoughts while you're on the way up. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, well, it's... anyway, back to reality. So, uh, there's a couple verses here. Let's read one or two of them. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, "It's because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt." So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as Phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. I love the whole tell your son. Do you know who was considered the primary educator in the, in the Hebrew family? The father. The father was the primary homeschooler. So don't turn your kids over to the state. I, I like things like Dominion Academy that are a marriage between homeschooling and a Christian school, but I would never let my kids go to a public school. Now, I believe God has called many Christian teachers to teach in public schools, but that's different than sending your kids there. Hopefully you're a Christian rescuing kids that are there, which is why we have all kind of ministries in the public schools, and we'll always do that. But I wouldn't send my kids there. By the way, did you ever notice that all the liberal people in Washington never send their kids to public schools? So, and by the way, one of the things if you, you know, that we learned when we first started ministering in public schools, there are lots of godly teachers there, Christian teachers, people who care, people who want to make a difference. But a lot of, you know, the rules are stacked against them from the whole federal situation. And a lot of the difficulty is the homes the kids are coming out of. And you get one teacher supposed to turn the lives of 30 kids around with no help from the parents. You know, at this school down here that Bob and Deanna and lots of us have ministered at, uh, you know, Miss Welch tells us that they never get any parental volunteers ever. And I sit there and watch these teachers trying to take 30 kindergartners that have been brought up in pretty rough homes safely to lunch and back. Just doing that is like a major challenge. That's why, you know, like our kindergarten reading program, these people love that we come. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. Uh, flipping over, when you ask your son in time, saying, what do the testimonies and statutes and judgments mean which the Lord commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. I loved telling my kids when they were little my testimony. <laughs> let me tell you, <laughs> telling your five-year-old about your, my, you need to hear about my drug addiction. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, no, I did. I, I loved uh, telling my kids about how God brought me to Christ. We were, uh, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt. You know, most of my kids, by the time they were 10, 11, and 12, were helping me cast out demons. They, because they knew how God had brought their father out by a mighty hand. I could have never broken out of drugs or any of the rest of it without having demons cast out of me. I would have never made hardly any progress. And one of the things that we struggle with today is when we talk about the five steps of entering the kingdom of God, so many of our people in our church get born again, water baptized, and baptized in the Holy Spirit, but then stop there and don't do the work they need to do to go through deliverance. And believe me, going through deliverance will, will uh, shoot your whole Christian life forward in so many ways. I was just talking to Leah Gray today. Uh, Leah Gray had terrible asthma. And it was very debilitating. And we took her through a deliverance session specifically about the kinds of spirits that lead to people having asthma. And she's had no struggles with her asthma ever since then. And that's been more than, probably around two years ago right now, right? And it, this had plagued her whole life. So this whole thing of God taking us out with a mighty hand is so important. I would that all of you would experience mighty things from God. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes, Pharaoh and his household, and so forth. Uh, Joshua, cross over the ark, and so forth. And remember when they went through the Jordan, which is the scriptures are there. Uh, back, I'm on the back of page two, if you're having trouble following. Um, hopefully everyone has the right hand. On. Remember, they were, they, were, they were to take 12 memorial stones. Why stones? Why not write out 12 pieces of paper describing the event? Because, yeah, because stones last a long time. Exactly. You know, like the whole little, remember the three little pigs? The one that built out of bricks, they should change it to stones. But uh, <laughs> so the point gets really driven home. You know, build out of stones. All right, three tra common traps within the church today distorted theology, which can be addressed by studying historical theology. Remember, hopefully everyone's had a chance to listen to last week's and you're not listening to this without the background of, of understanding of the last time. But remember we talked about how in Grace Christian Fellowship we wanted to help you study systematic theology, church history with historical theology, and biblical studies with biblical theology. And ultimately, biblical studies with biblical theology has to be the foundation that checks the others. But church history is, is how other Christians have done biblical theology through the years. And that is the ultimate check on systematic theology. And we kind of do it backwards very intentionally here, like we run our systematic theology class, and most people take that first. So there's a few people taking the church history this, this time that haven't taken the biblical theology because we just had way too many people sign up for the theology class this time. 
So we asked a few people to take this class first. But normally most people take the systematic theology class because once you understand all the categories and ideas of systematic theology, then you're sort of in a place to actually start working backward, in the, which is actually working forward in the right direction, to have your, have your biblical studies and your biblical theology and your understanding of how those were worked out in historical circumstances check your systematic theology. Because if there's anything going wrong with the church today is that our systematic theology is a completely new modern aberration. Most of the ways people interpret the Bible today, no one has ever interpreted the Bible that way. Up until after, if, if, if no Christians ever thought of an idea for the first 1800 years, you should be skeptical of that way of looking at things. And most of our eschatology, most of our ideas about liturgy, most of our ideas about worship, and things are brand new ideas that developed in the 19th century. You know, that Christians shouldn't drink wine, that we shouldn't recite creeds, that we shouldn't have scripture readings. All of those are brand new modern ideas that no Christian ever thought of before. And so it's kind of a denial that Christ said, I would build my church to think we're the, we got it right and every, all the other Christians throughout the centuries have always had it wrong. When they said the Apostles' Creed and the, and the Nicene Creed in every worship service, when they took communion weekly, when they had scripture readings every week. But most of the things we do about liturgy came out of a, a reaction against liturgy because basically what happens a lot of times in renewal movements, if it's not well-grounded theologically, is it's an overreaction against what was before. So the Christians of the 19th century had a tendency to look at the dead orthodoxy of the Anglicans and the Lutherans and the Catholics and so forth and say, oh, we don't want all that crap. We want to be on fire for God. So let's get rid of all the things that Christians have done since the first century and do it our brand new way. And we'll just have lively worship with tambourines and the guy will come up and extemporaneously talk about stuff without much study or education and so forth. And we'll skip scripture readings. We'll skip anything that's pre-scripted. The Holy Spirit must not be into it. If it's the Holy Spirit, it has to happen spontaneously. Well, that idea is nonsense. You know, I hope you know that on Fridays and Saturdays when I'm seeking the Lord about what to talk about on Sundays, I'm seeking the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit wants to talk about is the number one consideration. And He can show you in advance as much as He can show you on the spot. And He can speak a lot deeper to a mind full of Scripture and knowledge and wisdom than He can to an empty mind that doesn't know much about church history or theology and so forth. Uh, the second common trap, spiritual pride or hubris. One of the things we notice time after time after time after time, people who come from today's fundamentalist churches, they come in, uh, when they walk in our door, they know it all. And, and they begin to posture right away how, to let you know how much they know and how far along they are. And um, we just love on them and wait it out till they want to be teach till they want to be teachable. And say, hey, you you guys are doing everything kind of different. Why? 
for instance, today, you know, hopefully you've all read the book Spiritual Authority by Watchman Nee, one of our most important foundational books. And, you know, today's Christianity is radically individualistic. And most guys have a lot of strong ideas, but they've never actually been discipled by someone. Believe me, getting someone who you're actually accountable to and you stay involved four, five, six, seven years uh, will form you in ways that nothing else can. And that was actually what was supposed to happen from your father and your mother that often didn't happen. And one of the best insights God ever gave me was, although my wife and I had the chance to be discipled, we knew more about the Bible and theology and moved in prophecy. You know, I partly married her because she prophesied so powerfully and cast out demons so well and led people to Christ door to door and all those cool things that we had fun doing um, when we were kids. Um, but we invested so much in our kids, but we always knew that the most important things God was going to put in them would come from other Christians. So we put them in the context where other Christians could impart that to them. And I wish I could tell you that uh, the deep stuff you hear John saying every Sunday morning that's way past, way more in-depth and insightful than I am was because my, his, his mother and I were so cool of Christians. But it was because after we got done trying everything else... We, you know, John was totally into the Christian worship scene and all that, and we were glad a little bit for that, but he wasn't interested in the Bible worth beans until he went to Dominion Academy, and Wayne and Sandy and Michelle Caldwell got him. And then he'd come home and like, Dad, I've discovered studying the Bible and really reading it and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's what I've been praying for for like 27 years, <laughs> and you're only 13. But I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, and they have this thing they go to this called the Stratford Festival. And John came, you know, he, he sounded like someone who just got baptized in the spirit. He came in like speaking in tongues and go, Dad, I just spent eight hours in the car on the way back from Canada talking to Mr. McNamara about theology. It was so cool. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> Because they're never going to get from you some of the most important things God wants to get them. You just don't do that. It just doesn't work that way. So, um, that was a sidebar, I guess. Spiritual pride often comes with defensiveness, and this etiquette too can stall and inhibit learning that could lead to needed breakthroughs and paradigm shifts. I'm hoping you'll get that out of this class. So is the author of the book. And it, uh, lack of knowledge and lack of church history leads to ineffective ministry because you can't have effective ministry if you don't know long-term where you're going. Like the first thing I, I do when someone walks through our door is I begin to seek God about what God's called them to be and how can I partner with God to get them there. Right, Deanna Brown? <laughs> that was, I mean, like when, when God first started bringing Deanna, there was like a year where I was like, there's no way she'll ever hang out with us. But, but in the meantime, this is what I'm praying for to happen. I used to tell Leah Gray that Beth uh, Kariuki was going to 
come around to get baptized in the spirit and like about community and everything. Leah thought I was smoking crack. But you start just like when you meet someone, start to seek Lord the Lord about where they're going. Second Corinthians five says that although we've known Jesus Christ according to the flesh, we know him thus no longer. So we recognize no man according to the flesh. Don't relate to people about who, on the basis of who they are now. Relate to them on the basis of potential. All right. This book is for lay people who read somewhat regularly. In other words, he's trying to say, if you only read five books a year, nobody does that anymore in America. Uh, if you can read it all, you can read this book. <laughs> Even if you only re thought about reading five books. Uh, this book is written as a, has a series of stories. So one of the things that's uh, kind of scary for me right now, and I just want to explain. When the fundamentalist modernist controversy first broke out in the 1870s and so forth, one of the uh, insights of the liberals was, hey, the Bible is a narrative. It's telling stories with morals of what God is doing and so forth. But they cut off that, those stories from historical reality. So they were, they're no longer real stories that real happen, really happened to real people by the sovereign move of God. Right? So the fundamentalists overreacted to that by saying, it's not about stories at all. It's about dogmatic, didactic truths and principles. And you have to interpret it literally, not literary. So metaphors, types, symbols, foreshadowings, forget all that. That's what the liberals are doing. And so both went down wrong paths. The conservative evangelical churches became the Pharisees and the liberals became the Sadducees. And if both of them had studied church history, they could avoided, have avoided those wrong paths altogether. So a, a big movement among evangelicals that began in the 1890s, or the 1990s, I'm sorry, was a correction to that. Now every evangelical book out there is saying, the Bible is a book of stories, and we need to get the stories out of it and understand what God is doing through the stories of people. But having lost the history of, the, of what that battle was all about, they're not being careful to say, these are historically accurate, inerrant stories. That's why I make such a big deal of this. Because 100 years from now, this will be a big deal. Because 50 years from now to 70 or 80 years from now, there will be another movement that says, all those evangelicals started talking about stories, and within a generation or two, they all became liberals. The Bible is a book of stories that happened in a time-space continuum from a sovereign God acting according to his eternal decrees and purposes in history, and they literally happened, but you need literary devices to understand the story, the kinds of things you'd study in an in a anthology of English literature class or an, an anthology of American literature class. 
metaphors, symbolism, word pictures, foreshadowings, types. I love that, you know, I made a choice years ago to get into mystery detectives and movies because my wife loved those. And I said, whatever my wife's into, I'm going to like so that when we grow old together, we like the same things. So I didn't like mysteries and and all that, and mostly because, frankly, they, I had never, I, had, I grew up in public school. <laughs> and so I couldn't, I couldn't follow the clues. And so at the end of the story, I'd go, oh my gosh, there was that clue, that clue, that clue, and I didn't get any of the clues, right? So then I'd have to go back and watch it again. <laughs> And about the third time, I said, oh, my gosh, this was good. This was a good story, and they had all these foreshadowings and clues I should have seen all along. <laughs> right? And now, we're, I'm having some fun banter. Hopefully, you banter with your spouse a little bit in, in a respectful way. But I'm, now I'm trying to tell Catherine, see, I can do these mystery things better than you. <laughs> you, know, you missed that clue, and I got that clue. And I'll even, like when we're watching them, I'll go, that's a clue. <laughs> no, we'll pause it. What's a clue? Don't, don't you know that that guy's name is a, is a clue? Or, is, you know, this, whatever. The Bible is written like that. Everything in the Old Testament is a clue to what the Bible calls the mystery of God and the mystery of iniquity, the mystery of lawlessness, and so forth. The mystery of the kingdom of God. And it uses every kind of literary device that if you had a great private school or homeschooling education that really focused on how to read literature and get more out of literature by word symbols and parables and foreshadowings and, and pictures and all that, then you'll get more out of the Bible. Because it's all about Christ and the unveiling of Christ. And practically every major figure of the Old Testament and most of the minor ones foreshadow Christ. So uh, this book... This church history book, he he. Every chapter is around a certain story, so it's kind of a certain issue in church history, and how that issue developed in the time period. So he the the organizational scheme includes like the major time periods. Like the first time period is from the birth of Christ, approximately four to six B.C., till the death of the last apostles and the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. That's the first two chapters in the first section. The second section, chapters 2 through 8, we're only going to, we're, we're dividing, we're not actually stopping each, each uh, class, by the way, at the places he stops, because I just wanted to keep it an even amount of reading in terms of chapters. But So chapters 1 through 6, which we'll cover next time, based in and, and actually 7 and 8, which we won't cover until two sessions from now, deal with Christianity from the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD to the conversion of Constantine in 313 AD. And what's called the Edict of Toleration or the Edict of Milan or the Edict of Constantine, when Constantine made Christianity legal in 313. You, you had a question or... Comment, or are you going like he's so nutty? <laughs> well, uh, one through six will be next time. We're gonna get all six of them. Yeah, yeah, we will. 
Uh, well, we'll go through as many of the chapters as I can each time in an hour and a half. So, and I don't know if we'll get all the way through them, actually. But we'll pick up where we we're supposed to the next time. But you've read it, and you also have the tapes, and there's you know, all sorts of internet information. I'll cover as much of it as I can. That's, that's a good question. So you can, bring, you can make fun of me in front of everyone. It's okay. <laughs> I, be, I, I know I'm nutty. <laughs> and I'm, I'm very secure with that, as, as most of these people have known me for a while. Yeah, I'm like, like who would want to be pastored by me? I don't even want to be pastored by me. <laughs> I don't even want to go to my church. <laughs> this morning I was like, Catherine, no, I have to go to church? She said, yeah, you're the pastor. All right. Yeah, but I really don't like the, especially that older pastor's sermons. <laughs> All right, so uh, the last point on, on this, uh, I guess we're on the prologue, is that the church is both a movement and an institution. You know, we used to say an organism versus an organization, and it's both. All right, now let's move over to chapter one, Away with the King, the Jesus Movement. How much, what time did we start? 2.15, so we got about like 15, 17 more minutes. So obviously we won't get through all the material. Uh, Christianity is the only major religion to have its central event, the humiliation of God. Think, think on that a little bit. That is really a powerful thought. You know, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. There's some podcast that I've done on on the, uh, the whole idea of how the cross was foolishness to, gen- to, to Greeks or Gentiles. Uh, in the power, and what is it? Uh, to Jews. <laughs> which is which? Somebody looked that up in 1 Corinthians. We should know that off our hand. 1 Corinthians one eighteen or something. That it's stumbling block to Jews. And you're right. So to so the religious types, you know, Christianity is a scandal, in other words. Think about it. Like, if you're performance-based, how you be t- attain righteousness in Christianity is a scandal. Like, you just made Jane righteous for no reason? Because you love her? Like, she didn't actually, like, have to earn that? That's no fair. I've been trying to earn it for years. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, religious people get highly upset about, the, the, about grace. Like, you made this guy righteous? You know, that's why I love to, I don't mind people knowing what, you know, like about what a, you know, like your parents wouldn't let you hang out with me when you were a kid. It's, and it's why, like, I don't get it, but like, people don't get, like, I don't care what you were before you came to Christ. All we care about is who you're becoming in Christ. All right. Um. So that, that's uh, the second bullet point. Third bullet point is that Joseph Hellman's book, When the Church is a Family, is an excellent uh, book for what we're trying to talk about with the church. The gospel writers retrace Jesus as retracing the steps of Israel. We've done lots of podcasts. That was part of the whole gospel series we're doing now. And uh, Element 4 uh, on Jesus and the story of Israel. Um. He talks about how Jesus founded the church. I'm trying to just hit some bullet points because we're really uh, late. Um, uh, 
Okay, so then there's a little bit in that chapter, by the way, chapter one, about who the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, and Essenes are. But let me tell you, you could Google any of those and find out a lot more if you wanted to read just one more page on it. And believe me, um, I'm not a big fan of, for instance, the New International Version Bible, but the first time I ever started studying the different sects in the days of Jesus was because in Matthew 1 of the NIV Study Bible and the notes at the bottom, it starts talking about who the Pharisees were and who the Sadducees were and who the Herodians are and the Essenes and the Zealots. And I began to realize, hey, if I knew all that, it would... Uh, um, help me understand the whole dynamic of what, how how these guys go after Jesus in different ways, and how th in time there's you know an incident where the Pharisees and the Herodians combine together to try to chip Jesus up. That would be like if you know if we caught uh, you know Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump necking. <laughs> You know, like, like, what? You know, like, I mean, it, like the Herodians and the Pharisees hated each other more than the modern political parties. But they hated Jesus so much that they were willing to get together to try to cause Jesus to stumble. So knowing a little bit about who those are is really helpful to you. Um. Uh, he makes the point that current rabbinic Judaism is is basically the Pharisee party. So after the destruction of Jerusalem, there was actually one other revolt of the Jews against Romans, the Romans in about 115 AD. When that was crushed, after that there were no more Herodians, there were no more Zealots, there were no more Sadducees, there were only the Pharisees. And their whole version of Midrash and Mishnah and so forth became the rabbinic Judaism that we know today. Uh, if if you were to study the various sects of Judaism today and you were to study the Orthodox conservative Jews, that would be the outgrowth of the Pharisees over time. So when Jesus calls for the loyalty of his followers, he never confuses his mission with any of the objectives of those parties. Again, I'm very uncomfortable with so many so-called Bible-believing Christians identifying with the two political parties today. The main theme of Jesus' teaching is the kingdom of God. If you've never heard the 15 or so messages I did on the kingdom of God uh, in 2013, was it? Please listen to those. Uh, keep on going with chap chapter 1. Um Jesus taught that the rule of God was already present in saving power in his own person. Jesus welcomes their challenges to him because it gives him a chance to contrast his message of repentance and grace with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. In John 9, Luke 16, there's lots of examples of that. Now, Christianity distinguishes itself from pharisaical practices. Something that he doesn't get that much in this book that you really need to get is... Um, John touched on it today. Like, There's this kind of modern evangelical idea that Jesus came to abrogate the law. Right? And so Jesus was trying to tell us that the law doesn't matter, grace matters. 
that's not, that's how we all read the Gospels the first time we read them. That's not what Jesus was after at all. He was, he was against their extra biblical additives to the law. And he wanted to uphold the true law and its true spirit and its true purpose. And he fulfilled all the law with his, and, in, and by faith in him, you can fulfill the law. Uh, the, you should know what apostles are. That's one of the IDs. We did, uh, if you haven't heard my gift series, there's a whole uh, section of that about what an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teachers, what each of those ministries are in the New Testament and what, the, you know, because there's a lot of guys running around calling themselves apostles that don't have, like Paul said, do I not have the signs of a true apostles? If there's not signs and wonders, you know, the testimony we gave about Leah Gray and her asthma, if, there, if there's not lots of that in your ministry, don't go around calling yourself an apostle, for one thing. And if you're not planning churches according to a biblical blueprint and model and building a team like Paul had with T Timothy, and if God hasn't given you a team, you know, don't use those, those terms are way used too easily and too lightly in our culture. Get all the content of what it means to be an evangelist if you're going to be an evangelist. Um, hopefully, you'll begin to see in Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 through 66, especially the whole idea of a suffering servant. That was the hardest thing for the Jews to understand about Jesus. They thought of the Messiah as being this glorious king who'd come riding in to conquer and so forth. They couldn't deal with a king born in a manger who had no place to lay his head and came to give and serve. And who built things from the bottom up and the inside out and who was turning the world upside down one person into his covenant community at a time. That's why even in Acts 1, they say, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Like, are you finally going to do what we've been expecting the Messiah to do? Because you haven't done what we were expecting you to do up till now. And now you're saying you're going to go up to be with the Father and you're to wait for the Holy Spirit and so forth. When are you going to do the stuff? And Jesus is like, oh, no, <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> So, you know, he, he said, it's not up for you to know times and epics. What, here's, here's what you're just focused on. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit came, comes on you, and you're going to become witnesses, not that you're going to witness. Your whole community way of life is going to be a witness. And uh, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, they misinterpreted that as that they would go to all the Jewish synagogues that had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Finally, by Acts 10, they begin to understand, we're going to the, all the nations of all the people groups of, all, of every kind in the earth. But that's what the Bible had been saying all along. The Holy Spirit will never show you something that's not what the Bible has been saying all along. But he will clearly show you something, things that you didn't know the Bible was saying all along. And if you're not regularly having those kinds of experiences, that's a problem. There should be times in your Christian walk, whether it happens over a few months, few weeks, year, where you go, oh, Lord, that's what the Bible was saying all along? That's awesome. Let's do it. 
Sign me up. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. All right. Now, chapter 47 is on the expansion of global Christianity, and that's a whole different handout. And I think what I'm probably going to do is take class time away next time, which means we won't we probably are going to get behind a little bit at the beginning. I want I, I, here's something I want you to kind of understand. The first uh, seven or eight hundred years of Christianity are really, 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 really important. So if we get behind a little bit, we still follow the assignments in the book, and the IDs will be matched to the assignments. If my lectures are running a little behind, I will catch up because. Uh, some of the things in the Middle Ages and so forth, I, I will do quicker. I do want us to understand, uh, you know, like what's going on in Christianity today, which is chapter 47. That's why I put that right at the beginning. And, and I want us to see how that, the foundations for that were laid in the first 10 chapters of the book of Acts. And how that's what Ephesians chapter 2, the entire chapter, is about. And this modern phenomena where we have Korean churches and Nigerian churches and Rwandan churches and Kenyan churches and so forth, in African-American churches and white churches, and we never mix the two, all of that is, would be like the worst thing that could ever happen to the, to the first century Christians. That would be like, that denies the whole reason Jesus came. All Christians who lived in the same geographical city were in one church. And as we're going to see as we go uh, further into this, that one of the main accusations against the church in the first 300 and some years was how many poor people they had. Make a note to, to read, and read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31 a few times. So I'm actually, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to save chapter 47, but I'm, I'm hoping you get, get this. Um, I will probably speed up some things until the Reformation. I am going to emphasize the church, first eight church councils, the whole, the rise of, of the cults, Arianism, Docetism, Marcionism, my, uh, Manichaeanism and so forth, um, we're, and, and the church's response to those. And hopefully you're going to see how those same, when the, when the modern Christians began stop saying creeds and so forth, all of these cults came back because the creeds had wiped the cults out. Because if you say the Nicene Creed every week and God starts knocking on your door, and you start thinking about eternity, heaven, hell, I'm a sinner, conviction, and start wrestling with spiritual things, you're going to end up an Orthodox Christian at the end of that process because you've had the framework of Orthodox Christianity recited in your heart and mind every day and every week for, for your whole life. If you haven't had that, you've grown up in today's evangelical churches, and that starts happening in your life, you're going to become whoever gets to your door first. If the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses get to your door first, you're going to become a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. And that's why this idea that churches don't say creeds is not something that we do because it's cool. It's because they started doing that right after the resurrection of Christ. 
So next, so we're gonna we're gonna kind of look at a process next time. We're gonna look at chapter forty-seven, the expansion of global Christianity. Then we're gonna get in to. Uh, I'm really not gonna do much more, anything more with chapters one and two. We're gonna jump right into chapters three through six next time. And uh, already covered some stuff from chapter one and two, I guess. Or no, not just chapter one. And uh, I, I don't know if I'll do anything with chapter two. Probably not. What I want to do is get right into 3, 4, 5, and 6, and I want you to, to, to look at one verse uh, for your homework, so to speak. No extra charge. 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, how Paul talks about how um, that heresies or factions is some modern, but the Greek word is heresies. King James uses the word heresy. Arose so that the way of the truth might become evident or manifest. So take 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen and compare it in several good English translations. King James, New King James, New American Standard, English Standard Version, New English Translation, etc. If you, if, you're one of, if you know how to use Blue Letter Bible and look up the Greek words, look up the Greek words for divisions and factions and so forth. And what you, I want you to hopefully understand is there's a process that God ordained where starting late in the first century, uh, early enough that many people think that the first waves of this started so that Colossians and 1 John were written to counteract these things. But these challenges grew up with, from within the church to biblical Christianity. Gnosticism, Arianism, Manichaeism, Docetism, and so forth. And the church had to meet in councils, just like they did in Acts 15. They don't count that as one of the first seven ecumenical councils, so we have a history in this church of, like John's 15-part uh, series on finding Jesus in the Old Testament started with part zero, and then computer, computer guys start counting with zero. <laughs> so uh, church council zero the foundational prototype church council that the rest were based on was actually in Acts chapter 15. When Paul and Barnabas decided to go to Jerusalem and to get on the same page with Peter, James, John, and so forth. Now, the Peter, James, and John, the, the James you think of was killed already, but James, the Lord's brother, who had become clearly, in Acts 15, he's clearly the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church by that time to deal with how do we respond to these Judaizers that are, that are running out, that are following us from city to city and taking our Jewish converts and our Gentile converts and saying, you can't just become a Christian directly. You have to first become a Jew, get circumcised, learn Hebrew, start celebrating the festivals, get back, you know, get back to celebrating the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and all these things are, and so forth. And unless you're doing that, you can't become a Christian. And really, the whole Messianic Jew thing that's, that's popular today is because, because evangelical ways of reading the Bible have gotten rid of the Old Testament, and Christians instinctively know we should be getting something out of those. The, we should know what the Passover and the Feast of Booths is about and so forth. But it doesn't mean God wants us to become Judaizers and start re-celebrating him. He wants us to know what it meant in terms of Christ, which is why we teach on that every week in this church. He wants you to, to get to, under, to everything you read in the Old Testament. 
He wants you to be able to find Christ in it and see the foreshadowing of the practices of the early church communities. So we all get that? So we're going to look at uh, those centuries. Now, for